Okay, what we're going to do um, in the rest of our time in this session and the last session is begin to put all this together uh, in terms of uh, what, it, what it looks like to live this together as a mission of community, working it out in everyday life. Uh, looks like there's more seats available, by the way, unless they aren't coming back. I mean, unless they're coming back. So. Yeah, know that people aren't coming back and you want to get out of one of these chairs, you might be able to get the better chairs. Um, so I want to talk about... Um, how do you create a disciple-making culture? Because in that sense, that's how we ought to perceive the church, is that it's, it's the environment that God has given us, the people of God, in which disciples and through which disciples are made. And uh, I just wrote a little picture here. I'm going to unpack this together. If we, if we think of a disciple as one who's increasingly submitting all of life, to uh, God, um, in particular, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that we think about this, the whole idea of disciple-making, that's what it is. It's calling them to submit all of life to Him, uh, be changed by Him, and to obey Him in all of life. Um, then, well, the way we've talked about this is that there's kind of a, a vertical, uh, a horizontal, and an internal, kind of an upward, inward, outward kind of thing. You know, there's a worship... Uh, there's a transformation of the heart, and there's an expression of the life out in everyday life. And so I just want to walk through this. This will be, hopefully, what won't take long, but then we'll start to unpack it. Um, so if God is our Father, we're, we're seeing Him as Dad. We look up to Him. We love Him. We receive love for Him. We see Him as our provider, our protector, all those things that are great about the right kind of view of Dad. And, and what's going on is the Spirit is pouring the love of the Father into our hearts. That's the inward. You know, we know the love of the Father. We're hearing from the Father. We, you know, we are growing in our affection for the Father. That's that inward. Which will lead to an outward, we love one another. Like family, like brothers and sisters. And all three of those are absolutely imperative. We need to keep reminding people of God the Father expressed through the Son so that His love might be poured into our hearts by the Spirit. So we are being changed regularly. And that, that's one of the things, like whenever I'm, whenever I'm beginning to develop a, a, a another person, in particular, I tend to pour my life into young, younger men, though I do pour my life into older men as well. And my wife and I together do pour into our lives into both men and women. But uh, when, when I think about the, the men that I'm developing, one of the first things I'm doing is I'm asking, do they know God as Father? Do they, have, do they experience the Father's love being poured in their hearts, like Romans 5.5 5 says should happen? By his spirit. Um, and so I'm even listening to their prayer life. You know, I, I, I pay attention. Our prayers, by the way, are a great way of to getting to the weather to find out what people actually really believe. <laughs> it's amazing. So, by the way, I, I think it's one of the reasons why when you look at the apostles, they devote themselves to, to uh, they want to continue to devote themselves to the preaching of the word and to prayer. And it's quite interesting because, well, I think we tend to think, now, prayer is only talking to God, but for them it was actually getting God's agenda. <laughs> so they're like, God, speak. We need to know what's next. And so when they didn't have time to do that, they didn't know what to do. It wasn't like they were reading the best church planting manuals. You know, or, What do we want us to do? Spirit, lead us. And so they're being led by the Spirit. But what Paul then tells us is because they were able to listen and because they had the Spirit, they could actually hear the Father saying he loved them. And they knew that. It was real. And that, that changed the way they did ministry. Um, because you always administer out of the overflow of, the, of love. You know, whatever's being poured into you is what pours out of you. And so um, when, I'm, when I'm interacting and pouring into younger leaders, younger disciples, um, regularly I'm, I'm listening, what is their prayer life like? Uh, and I don't mean like, are they praying a lot? I mean, what is going on in their prayer life? Because praying a lot doesn't necessarily mean they know God at all. I mean, you can have lots, I mean, the Pharisees, again, with lots of prayers on a street corner. Prayers doesn't mean any, praying doesn't mean anything by itself. It's, are they talking to the Lord? Is he talking to them? Do they have a vibrant relationship? Um, my dad used to, we have, I grew up in a family of four boys, and my dad would take each one of us boys out weekly. So, you know, you could just see in four weeks in a month and just kind of rotate. And he'd take each one of us out for breakfast, and we'd talk, you know, and he'd ask, how you doing? And, and I, had a, I had a very close relationship with my dad. And, um, and so father stuff probably is a little bit easier for me. I, 
My dad was a pretty decent picture of God the Father, though he's got plenty of brokenness that made him a bad picture as well, just like every earthly father does. But what, what, I, what I loved about that time is my dad took time to teach me how to have a relationship with him. And I think our prayer lives should be that. We're learning how to have a relationship with our father. Learning how to listen to him, how to hear from him, how to respond to him, how to talk to him like a dad. And I was in developing one of the guys, his name was Randy, who I recently handed off the baton of my leadership to. I've been, I was born into him for about four years, and uh, he just took over the impl implementing of our church's vision and preaching, which is what I used to do. And so I just handed that baton off this fall. And, but, we, but back up about four years ago, when I first started pouring my life into him, he was a pretty new Christian then, um, we'd pray together regularly. And I remember listening to his prayer life, and it, was, it, just, it sounded something like this. Lord God, would you just, God, God, would you please, God, would you, Lord God, would you just. It was always that kind of language. God was very far and distant. God needed to be appeased. There was a sense that he needed to prove himself through prayer that he was worthy of God answering it. And that was because he had a very abusive dad who was very, um, very distant and very disengaged emotionally. And so his, his picture still of God the Father was his dad. And so I remember stopping one time. I said, I've been praying with you for quite a while. I've never heard you call God your father. Uh, I still have a sense that you feel like God isn't approachable, uh, that, that there's, like, there's not access to everything he has freely, that he, he loves to hear you and loves to give you good gifts. He's a great dad. I'm not hearing that. And he had, he had, while I was training him, been going to seminary as well. He's like, well, I know God's father. I know. I, I believe it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I get it. I was like, no, you don't. So let's stop. Let's pray again. Talk to your dad. Dear God, would you just, would you, God, would you, and he couldn't get father out. I said, calm your dad. Calm your father. We went for about 10 or 15 minutes. He still could not call God his dad. God his father. And that's actually what Jesus taught us to call him. <laughs> so it's not like I'm being legalistic or anything. I'm just like going, this is your God. He's your dad. He's your father. This is biblical. This is right. It's good. It's, it's what your heart needs, Randy. And, um, we walk through what does the gospel say and that now he, he can approach the throne of grace with, in his time of need. He, he can do it boldly. He doesn't need to shrink back. He doesn't need to justify himself. He doesn't need to convince God he's more serious through his many words and lofty talk and prayer. And he, he just couldn't get there. And I said, you know, I'm going to pray over you and ask that the Spirit of God would reveal the Father's heart to you. Because until you get that, I really don't think you're going to be able to effectively minister of love to anyone else. If you haven't received it yourself. And I prayed over him and he tried to pray again. It still didn't come. I said, okay, I, I got to get going. I got to get off to a meeting. I'm sorry to leave. Wish I could stay longer. I said, I want to call you to just get, it, you know, get on your knees and ask the Spirit to pour the love of the Father in your heart and ask him to change your perspective of God the Father as you look at Jesus the Son. And he, he told me later that he was really mad at me. <laughs> um, but he also knew it was true, so he got on his knees. He went in his bedroom after I left. He said he got on his knees and he just cried out to God and said, would you show me yourself? Would you show me your Father heart? Would you open my eyes to see Spirit pour the love of God the Father into my heart? And he said he just began to feel the Spirit poured into him, just melt his heart. And he, went, and he was a really like, he still is a pretty robust kind of get-in-your-face kind of guy about theology and all those things, and yet he was, he was really hardened in his heart. And the, the father just softened his heart, just poured his love into his heart. And I mean, now I hear him all the time just cry out to his dad and his father. And he repented of worshiping his earthly father as his picture of the heavenly father. And then he, re and he received the spirit, pouring the father's love into his heart. And so there needs to be this inward transformation of the heart if we're going to understand what it means to be family. Because here's the deal. If I, if I were to say to you guys, go live like a family, but you didn't know the father's love, you would live like an earthly family. You have worldly perspective on family instead of let the Father transform your picture of family. Now, the interesting thing is, is many of us have a very worldly perspective of family anyway because we've let our nuclear family, kind of the American dream family, become our primary picture of family. And as we talk later this afternoon, some of you guys are going to go like, well, how do you do this with a family? And I'll ask you, how do you do this without a family? But see, your picture of family is already wrong probably because you've been taught that the family is, the first family is your wife and kids. But Jesus actually says your first family is those who do the will of the Father. 
Mark, Mark chapter 4, right? And so you're like, wait a minute, what do I do with my wife and kids? Well, so you get them to be the family of God. <laughs> you know, so they are your first ministry. But you have to rethink family. You know, and a lot of people use family as a way to disobey God because it's become our new center instead of Jesus. And, and by the way, the worst thing you could do for your kids is make them the center because they can't handle being God for you and nor can you be God for them. So we'll talk more about that because some of the implications are how do we live out being the church on mission in everyday life when I've got kids and wife and all that? And I would say to you, it's actually much easier than you thought it was. Uh, because God gave you the means by which you can do ministry, which is your family together, uh, instead of separating them. And that's part of our problem. We'll get to that in a bit. But you've got to be transforming your heart. you got to, your worship in, in your heart, but that's connected. Okay? Whatever, you, whatever you love and worship most is what you become most like. And so you want to, become, you want to know the love of the Father. You've got to make, you worship Him and let Him pour the love of the Father into your heart so we'll love one another as brothers and sisters. Same with this. Son, we submit to the Son as King. Submission, by the way, will look like ongoing repentance and belief. Like it's ongoing. Show me where you're not king, where you're not Lord, where I'm trusting something else or someone else instead of Jesus as the one who's to be the, the transformer, the change agent, the power in my life. So repent and belief is that process I brought you through earlier. That's going to be ongoing. Uh, that's your inward kind of process. And upward is I submit to him. He's my king. He's my Lord. Therefore, I'm his servant. And it's no longer a question of, Will you do it? It's what will you will you do? It's not, well, am I gonna am I gonna serve or not? It's like, no, I'm a servant. Jesus, tell me what to do. And half of our struggle is is as determining whether or not we really want to serve him or not. But if you get over that one, then it's just tell me what to do, King. Today, tell me what to do. I'm your servant. I'll do whatever you tell me. Then then that from that point on, you're 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 good to go. But most of it's we want to serve another king. Every day. So repent and believe. Submit to the true king. And then we'll live out our life showing the kingdom by serving the least of these. And then again with the Holy Spirit. Submitting to the Holy Spirit that he would fill us. That he would empower us. That he would send us to be missionaries. And as we're sent as missionaries, we're sent to tell. To witness to Jesus. And that's what the Spirit's been given to you to do. Is to be a missionary. Um, I think some of the concerns I have about our view on the Holy Spirit is that we've made the Holy Spirit primarily about me. You know, my experience and my life and, you know, in our church services and all that. It's like, yes, he's going to do that. He's going to change you. And absolutely. But if, if we don't realize that we've been given the spirit that we might be witnesses to Jesus as his missionary people, then it'll be as though we think the spirit was given just for us instead of we were to be a temple of the Holy Spirit through which he tell, calls the world to Jesus through us. So we want to make sure we get that right. Okay, so I just want to put that all together. You can kind of see... Um, what that is. Any questions about that before I begin to talk through why we need to now put this together in what, what we call a missional community? Okay? Good? This is going to be that hard hour after we eat. So if you need to get up and move around, I'm cool with that. So three things. When you think of a, a discipling environment which puts this all together, you, there's going to have to be three things that are going to have to be true about that environment. One, you're going to have to have an environment where it's life on life. What I mean by life on life is your life is visible and accessible and so are the ones that you're discipling. They can actually see what it looks like to follow Jesus in all of life. In other words, you could go, how do I know that they love one another? Well, I'm going to have to actually be with them to see how they love their spouse or their children or their coworkers or their community that they live in, their neighborhood or whatever. And how are they going to know what it looks like? They're going to have to live with me. Now, I don't mean communal living. I don't just mean like, you know, some people are like, oh, so this whole missional community thing is like everyone's living in everybody else's house. Uh, not necessarily like sleeping there, but we'll probably have to be with one another. You know, the requirement of an elder is that they're hospitable. What does that mean? It doesn't mean they just hang out with their friends. Okay, hospitality biblically is you open your life and home to the stranger. You open your life and home to the ones who don't know what it's like to belong to God's family. And they have to come in and taste it and experience it. What we've called hospitality is just Christian community. That's not hospitality. Okay, now we should do that as brothers and sisters. We should be together, enjoy one another, serve, care for one another, all that. But hospitality is opening your life and home to those who don't have it. Okay, they don't, this is the stranger, the orphan, the widow, the, the one that comes through 
but doesn't belong. And we bring them in so they can experience belonging to the family. And so how are you ever going to learn that if you don't see it? How are you going to learn that if it's never been done to you? So like you want a bunch of disciples in your church, they're going to do this in their own home. The reason why elders are supposed to do it is because they're to set an example to the flock so that they're living the life they're calling everybody to live. There's no, by the way, if you're a leader here and you've made an exception to the rule, everybody else will make an exception as well. So you're like, yeah, I, you know, I'm the leader. I can't really have people in my home. It's kind of my place, my refuge. You know, my ministry is my 40 hours a week, and then I come home, I need to have space from it all. You know what your church is going to do? You know what my work week is? I go to Boeing all week long or wherever it is around here. You know, like up where I'm at is Boeing or Microsoft or Starbucks or Amazon or whatever. Like that's my work week. And you know, when I come home, I'm tired. And I just want me and my wife and kids. That's what we're going to do. And, you know, on the weekends, of course, I'm not giving myself to anywhere else. I've given my work week away. And who are they following? They're leaders. See, because we, we, we've said the same thing. Why, do, why are elders worthy of double honor? Because they both live the example life as well as teach others to do it. They're, they're doing both. They're teaching and exampling and equipping and coming into people's lives and helping them learn. And they're an example of how it looks. So whatever you make normative for your church, make sure that you live as the example. doesn't mean you do everything. just means you do everything that's normative. So I remember talking to leaders once, and I said, would you expect everyone to be in a small group? They said, yes. I said, are you in one? And they said, well, you know, we... You know, well, we, we can't, you know. And I said, why? And I said, well, we are kind of in one. The elders all get together, and that's our small group. I'm like, how convenient of you to have the most mature, you know, <laughs> eagerly to work with you people in your group where everybody else has to have people that they would rather not have in their group, in their group. So quite interesting that you've done that, you know. Uh, and so we can't do that, leaders. We lead by example. But life on life, life together where it's accessible, visible. I remember, um, you know, as I was pouring my life into Randy, he, no visible picture of a godly dad. Where is he going to get it? He's not going to get it from sermons. He's not even going to get it from me talking about good illustrations about how I raise my kids. So that's important. He does need to hear that. He's going to have to see it. So we brought him into our home. We ate meals with us. Eventually he started dating a girl, Lisa, they together came in. We, we walked through dating with them. We walked through how, overseeing that relationship with them, making sure they honor one another because they hadn't been taught how to do that. Uh, eventually, she moved in with us, lived with our family. She needed a place to live. Uh, he obviously didn't live there at that point because <laughs> they weren't married yet. Uh, but they were, in a sense, most of their dating was under our roof. You know, we were a part of it. And, uh, and then eventually when we helped them through pre-engagement counseling and then eventually got engagement counseling and then we did their wedding then they moved in, and they lived in our house for a while. And there were times my wife and I would be having a fight, and they'd be sitting in the room with us, and they'd be like, hey, we're going to go downstairs and just let you guys go. And i go, no, you sit right there. Because <laughs> how are they ever going to see conflict and how it gets resolved with the gospel? You know, all he ever saw was his dad yelling and hitting and leaving. So he's not, if he thinks that's what, what is about to happen, he's got to see a different picture of res a resolution between a couple that's fighting with Jesus at the center and bringing reconciliation to that. And so they'd sit and watch us fight, and he watched me do bedtime routine with my kids. You know, I would take them up and say, hey, I want to show you how I, what I do with my kids and how I pray with them and read the scriptures with them. And he'd see dinner, you know, devotions, and saw how hard it is. And you're like, I mean, I, some of you guys are really, like, you figure out how to do it really neat all the time. I don't. Like, it's like... I don't know how you pull it off with kids like at a table with their all ages. and You know, you just do your best and you teach them in the cracks of life and along the way when you sit, when you rise, you do Deuteronomy 6. And, but he had to see me do Deuteronomy 6, see? He had to see some of the dinner conversations around the scripture go really well and others just fall apart. Because a lot of dads get really, really discouraged because they're like, gosh, it seems like our pastor like, must have perfect devotions every single night around the dinner. Well, my kids are a mess. You know, and the truth is nobody has perfect kids around the dinner table. They all kind of throw things and mess up and don't always agree. And, you know, they have fights. And so he saw all that. I remember he, he tells me one of the most memorable points of him as a father really getting it was he, uh, Caleb, my middle child, um, got in trouble. And, and I started talking to him about what he did. And he ran upstairs to his bedroom crying. And I told you he tends to go towards shame. So he went and hid. And I went up the stairs, and I went up pretty quick. And Randy said, the first thing they thought in his mind is, Caleb, you better run or you're going to get your butt kicked. Like, all he thought of was his dad coming after him to beat him. 
So he told me he was scared to death for Caleb's life when I ran up those stairs. That was his perception of a dad. And he didn't have the perception of the heavenly father pursuing his kids with love and outstretched arms and welcoming his son back from, from squandering his life. He had a father in his mind who's going to come and beat the living tar out of him. And so I'm running upstairs after my son, and he's paying attention to what I'm about to do. And the first words he hears is, Caleb, why are you running? You don't ever need to run from your dad. I love you. I'm for you. And I just began to call out my son to come out of hiding. I said, come here, buddy. I love you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. Your dad loves you. He'll never stop loving you. So remember the Father in heaven and what he's like. And I just began to preach the gospel to my son about the Father sending the Son and the Son loving us regardless of what we've done and him laying down his life. I said, son, you'll never have to be afraid. The Father loves you. And I hugged him and we talked about the gospel and I prayed over him and he confessed his sin to me and we had a great time of of just repenting before God. And, and Randy's listening to this whole thing. And he told me later, he said, that totally transformed my view of what a dad does with his son. Well, he wouldn't have got that if we hadn't had life together. So you think, how are we going to train people to live this way? You know, I know that I'm not training you today. I'm exposing you to new ideas. I'm Hopefully the Spirit of God is like, bringing some heart desire, some maybe rethinking of what it means to be as people. I mean, all that can happen today. I can't train you to live this out. You're going to have to be with a group of people who are helping each other live this out, who are watching each other, encouraging each other, speaking into each other's lives, saying this is what it looks like. Well, that's not what it looks like. Well, let's help each other. Life on life. And it's going to be life in community too. Not just life on life, but life in community. Because what happens if you only have one-on-one discipleship? What if only I discipled Randy? What would Randy look like? Me. Who do I want him to look like? Jesus. Who is he going to need to look like Jesus? The body. So he he needs not just me. He needed my wife. He needed our community. He needed a whole bunch of people who are loving him, speaking to his life. Because he's only going to get a very, very narrow perspective for me. And I've got all kinds of blind spots. I've got all kinds of weaknesses. I've become more and more convinced that one-on-one discipleship can be very dangerous. Okay? I mean, it's one-on-one only. Okay? I think there's times to do one-on-one. But when it's only one-on-one, you end up looking like you're the one who taught you. And the, the problem is, is not one person is going to be sufficient. We need more. We need other perspectives. We need Because we're all broken. We all need other people to go, like, hey, you know, I, I know what Jeff was teaching you, but here's some things, you know, well, can I add this? Now, even for us, this inward process of being transformed, we do that in groups of three at least. We call them DNA groups. Three guys together, three girls together. Because we know that one-on-one has a very strong potential that they won't, they won't have anybody push on me once in a while when I'm pouring into a younger guy. So if i got a couple guys with me, I can be sharing something. Some would go like, hey, Jeff, I'm seeing it a little different than that. Or you know what, Jeff, here's some things that are wrong with you. <laughs> Let's talk about that. You know, I need that. I don't need to be always the guy up above everybody. I need to have people speak into my life. And I need to have more than one speak into my life. Okay, so... Life and community. In fact, how do you learn how to do the one and others in, in one-on-one? You can't. And yet we know that this is how they'll know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. How are they going to see bearing with one another, forgiving with one another, you know, sharing one another, praying for one another, serving one another, eating? I mean, all the one another throughout all Scripture. You've got to have more than one person. There's a, it's a plural. So third, it's got to be not only life on life, life in community, but life on mission. Because you don't know how to make disciples in a classroom. You make disciples by getting out on mission and reaching people that don't know Jesus. And you know how well people are, how effective people are at sharing the gospel when they're actually out doing it and you're watching them. You see how effective people are at confronting each other in brokenness and sin when you're with them doing it. Like, have you guys ever been on a mission trip? Like those one week or two weeks or one month or whatever, and you go on a mission trip and you do all this prep and all this training. It's kind of like, the way I liken it, it's like most, most church gatherings are like a chalk talk for a mission. But if you never go on mission, you just keep having more chalk talks. And you guys, maybe if you don't know the sports analogy, that's like, you know, when you get out with your team, you're sitting there and drawing up, okay, this is what we believe, this is what we're going to do, and here's the team and how we're going to fight. And then you just never go play the game. And I think that's a lot of what we've become in the church. It's like, let's talk about the game. Let's talk about the plays we should make. Today, by the way, this is a chalk talk, just so we're clear. That's all this is. Like, I, you might go away and go, man, that was awesome. So good, man. I learned so much. It was great. Can't wait till the next one. You know? And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Go play the game. 
But the, if you don't play the game, you just hear it. It's all theory. And so the beauty of, you know, by the way, I'll get to this in a little bit, but that life together, that's like scrimmage. It's like learning how to practice sharing the gospel to one another and building. Now, it's, it's real. I'm not saying it's not the real game. It's a real game. But until you get out in the front lines, you don't understand the language of you're a soldier. When you hear Paul talk about being a soldier, you don't get it until you're out in the battle. But we're soldiers. We're in a battle. So we need to feel that battle. Remember Jesus' discipleship methods? It was He was doing it with them, teaching them, and then he sends them out by themselves. And they come back, and they're like, oh, man, we this, 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 but we couldn't do that, and what about this? And Jesus then confronts them and teaches them instructs them, and he sends them out. It's this ongoing, going on mission that we learn best. And, and so, you know, the, the thing about a mission trip is you do all these chalk talks, and then you go away for a week or two. And, of course, everyone's like, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to go. You know, and then you get there, and you land, and... You know, you distribute off people off to where they're going to go stay, whatever houses they're going to be in, or you're staying in tents or wherever, whatever mission trip you're doing. And usually about day one or two, people are like, I don't like, what do you think about where you're living? I don't really like my place. Like, there's bugs running all over the place. And, you know, I'm sitting in bed with someone else. And, you know, all this complaining and, and you know, bickering, you know. And day two, day three, you know, you're all sitting like, I'm tired and I just want to go home. And these people are driving me nuts. And, Man, I thought they'd be fun, but they're not fun. They're kind of jerks. And, you know, you're day three, four, five, and you're like, man, I want to kill somebody. You know, like you're going nuts. And, and, then, and then all of a sudden you have this breakdown. It's like you die to yourself. You die to what you thought life should be like. You die to living for comfort. And hopefully you do. Some people don't. But if you do, you, you experience this submission to Jesus, and you ask for help, and you pray together like you've never prayed before, and you, you experience healing and repair and restoration, and you some of you experience miraculous things. I have. I've seen real healings, like physical healing take place. I've seen people speak in other languages, and somehow they never could before, and they preach the gospel, and you, you see all these things happen, and mission, and you, you know, and by the end of the week, you're like, we love each other, this is the first week of my life, I believe it, you know, like, God was amazing, and he did crazy things, you know, you, you're back, and you're like, we're gonna live like this, I can't wait till next year. <laughs> you're like, no, you missed the whole point. That's how life is supposed to be. Back home. But you went home and thought you got done with mission. That was just training. That was boot camp for mission everyday life. But we don't, we don't actually live on mission in everyday life. And so we wonder why we don't experience this powerful transformation and, and this miraculous thing. You've got signs and wonders that God wants to bring about through his church. Well, we don't need to. The life we live doesn't require the power of the Spirit. I think most of the life most of us lives, we could live pretty, pretty easily without God. And that's the problem. So you want people to get discipled in dependency on the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, serving Jesus to the point of leaving, losing their own life with the love of the Father? You've got to get them out on mission. They'll never get discipled in these things if they stay in their seats. They just won't. And if all you do is Bible studies where you talk about getting on mission, they won't grow up either. In fact, you'll actually grow a bunch of self-righteous Bible knowers. They'll know lots of Bible, but they won't believe it. Not really, not in the depths of their soul, because they'll never have experienced the truths of God's word breaking out into life. That's what we want. So we want them a life on life, life in community, life on mission. Well, how do you do that? How do you get people to a place where it's a life on life kind of, life in community kind of, life in mission kind of discipleship? And uh, for us, that's what led to a missional community. We really, we weren't trying to figure out what's a new program. We were just going, what does the word show us? How did the people live it? When we look at Jesus' discipling, when we look at the early church, what did their lives look like? And we don't want to be prescriptive and just go like, it's got to be exactly like the New Testament. Or it's got to be exactly like Jesus. We understand we're all in different cultures and different times. But we still have to wrestle with, how do we do this? How do we make disciples? It is what we're called to do. And so for us, we landed on what we used to call house groups, just so you know. But that didn't seem to work well because then it seemed like it was just about the house instead of the people. And so we finally landed on missional community as what we called them, uh, because we realized that there's this natural tension for, for the church. And that tension looks like this. It looks like community, which is we want to love one another, be with one another, serve together and all that, and then mission. And there's, we often swing the pendulum between these two. And what happens is we go out individually all by ourselves to go on mission to share the gospel with people. 
But the problem is you've lost the primary apologetic of the gospel, which is our love for one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. John 17, Father, I pray that you'd make them one. As you are in me, as I am in you and you are in me, may they be in us so that the world may know that you've sent me. Don't take them out of the world. Leave them in the world. They're sanctified by truth. Your word is truth. What is he saying? He's saying the most powerful apologetic, and apologetic is the, kind of the, the way someone comes to know something actually works. Think of it that way. The most powerful apologetic of the gospel, that it actually does work, it is the power of God to save, is when a group of people who wouldn't love one another love one another. And they do it in the middle of a broken and depraved world and they shine like stars in the dark night because they're not being changed by the culture around them, but they're bringing change to the culture because the gospel is more important or powerful than the sin that they live around. That, that's what happens. And so we're like, we can't just do mission without community because we have, they won't see, they won't see God's people being transformed. But we can't just do community and expect it to be amazing because community, loving one another just for ourselves, becomes codependency after a while. Just we live to be loved. We love to be needed. And we just kind of create these codependent relationships within the church. And, and it comes down, I think, at sometimes from the top where a pastor goes, man, I can't train these people up to be healthy because then they wouldn't need me anymore. And I think that's really true. If we're going to be honest, and I've talked to some pastors about this, they're like, man, if everybody got equipped and left, what's the job security in that? I'm like, what are you talking about? Who said this was for you? This is, pastoral ministry is not a career path. It's a calling. And you should never expect to do it to get paid. By God's grace, you get freed up financially. Thank God for that. My guess is there's enough people on this planet that you'll never run out of an opportunity. You know, until Jesus returns. Like, I think you got plenty of work to do. So, like, half your church leaves to go start another church. There's a whole other, like, million people in San Diego. Like, I'm sure not all of them love Jesus. we got work to do, right? So, I think we're doing okay. So, we said, let's live with a missional community, meaning the community loving one another on mission is the best apologetic we've got of the power of the gospel. And a mission without community it's, it's very in, ineffective. You, sending people out all by themselves to share the gospel is not effective. I just, I'll tell you that. You, know, you need to be with each other to do this. So that's why we called it that. Now what is it? I want to just walk through a definition of it, and then we're going to walk through how we build these. Um, for us, when we define a mission community, we say it's a family of missionary servants sent as disciples who make disciples. So you're hearing all identity language in there. Family of missionary servants sent as disciples who make disciples. Now hopefully what you're hearing there too is it's got a multiplication expectation. It's not just a family of missionary servants sent as disciples. It's sent as disciples who make disciples. I think that's super imperative. If you don't put into your development the expectation that they'll do it someday without you, then they'll never have to grow up. You know, it's like what I do with my son. Regularly with my son, Caleb, who's nine now, but he, I started this when he was about four. Every single thing I did with him, I told him he was going to do this with his own children someday. So we'd sit down and we'd do prayer time together. And I'd say, buddy, let's get on our knees. We'd get on our knees. I'd say, why are we on our knees? I was always creating catechism for him, you know, the, asking the question so he gives the answer. Why are we on our knees? Because we need God. That's right. Why else are we on our knee, knees? Because Jesus is king. That's right. Why else are we on our knees? Because we need the help of the Spirit to do this work. Okay, great, let's pray. And then we pray, and I was just training him. And I remember the first time when I said, hey, buddy, I'd love to have you pray for Dad. Would you pray for me? He's like, Dad, I don't want to. I said, okay. I said, I want to remind you, before we go to prayer, someday you're going to have to teach your kids to pray. And you're going to pray with them. So let's, let's go pray now. So I start praying, and I'm praying for my son. I got my hand on his shoulder, just praying over him. And he goes, Dad? I go, what? Goes, Can I pray? I said, yeah. I said, why do you want to pray? He goes, I got to get good at this. <laughs> so he's like putting in front of him, like he's expecting to pray. Like, you know, when you're thinking about a group of people, are you thinking that they're going to do it someday without you? Build that in. Hey, what I'm doing with you, I'm teaching how to read the Bible. It's because you're going to have to teach others to read the Bible someday. Pay attention. Think about who you're going to do this with in a few weeks. Like you're just expectation right in front of them. They're disciples who make disciples. Key, 
disciples who make disciples. Many people in the church think they're a disciple and they've never made a disciple. They've never led one person to Christ. They've never helped grow up someone in the faith. They've never done any of it. And they've been in the church for 40, 50 years. They're going, how is this possible? It's like my son going, hey, son, someday I'm sending you out. And he goes, dad, I don't really want to ever leave the home. Could you always pay the bills and make the bed and pick up my toys? And How old are you, son? I'm 40. Oh, gosh. I'll keep doing that for you, buddy. Because I love it when you need me. I know. That's ridiculous. My son needs to be trained to leave. Leave and cleave. Start his own family someday. I've got to prepare him for that. Okay? So it's a family of missionary servants sent as disciples who make disciples. Now, clarification. A missional community. I'm going to do a few things. What it's primarily not. And I hate doing this, but I've learned that if I don't, everyone goes, okay, I know what a missional community is. It's a small group that does a Bible study about mission. We have missional communities, and I'll sit and talk and go, yeah, we got missional communities. We have 40 missional communities. Really? Tell me about their mission. They're like, well, they study the Bible. Okay, and, and who are they making disciples of? Well, themselves. Okay, well, that's not a missional community. So I've learned I have to clarify what it's not. I'm only doing this because I think we all come at it with our preconception. Okay, so what it's primarily not, though it is this, it's not primarily not, it's primarily not a small group. And what I mean by that, it's probably small, but it's not primarily a small group in the sense that in our culture over the last 40 years, small group in the church has primarily been a means by which we help people experience in a smaller setting what they could not have experienced from the church because the church got bigger, or it's the way to kind of close the back door, as it were. That's the actual language that was used when it was getting really popular. So it kind of keeps people. It's kind of a, a retention strategy. Um, and usually, who is the primary focus of the small group? Who's it for? It's for Christians, for us, okay? Now, don't hear me saying this. I'm not saying it's bad to be in small groups with Christians. <laughs> so I'm not at all. I think it's very important to do that. But that's not what a missional community is primarily. It does do that. It's not primarily that. It's also not primarily a Bible study, okay? We, we should study the Bible, but it's really interesting when you look at the early church, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching because they had to be. They're like, teach us, help us. We're trying to be faithful to the mission. What does that look like? How do we do it? What? Okay, we're stuck. Give us some more. And there was a real, like, they were like hungry for it. You guys, you guys ever done something where you all of a sudden had to get trained in a way you never got trained before? Like I, I ran the Chicago Marathon when we first planted Soma. I had a friend come to me and he goes, He's like, hey, bud, you know, like, I'm going to run this race called the Chicago Marathon. I said, yeah, have fun. And <laughs> he said, no, I was going to see if you wanted to run it with me. I'm like, are you kidding? Why would you ever run for just the sake of running? Like, like you either run because something's chasing you, or you run because you're chasing something like a soccer ball or a football. Like, that's the reason for running. To run just to run? That's just nuts. All you runners in the room, you're crazy. That's all I got to say. Like, you're crazy. I respect you because I don't have enough motivation to run at for no reason. <laughs> just, so, but I did because he said, well, the only reason you don't want to do it is because you can't. And I said, oh, I can't? And, of course, my pride kicked in, and I said, I'll show you. And, and so I've, never, I've only run one race in my entire life, and it was a marathon. I've never run ever again. I never ran before. Because <laughs> my pride got the best of me. And so... I played soccer, so I mean, it's not like I didn't had to run before, but not just for the sake of running. And, uh, and so I'm training for the Chicago Marathon. And can you imagine what I did? I studied. I mean, I, I, I subscribed to a couple runners' magazines. I devoted myself to teaching about running. Okay? I, I studied about clothing, because it is important that you wear certain kinds of clothing, because chafing yeah. is, <laughs> you know, really painful. <laughs> You know, and I learned about diets and how to eat and what to eat and when to eat and how much to eat. I learned about hydration and how to, you could drink too much water or not enough. I learned about your shoes and how important it is to get the right shoe for your kind of foot. I learned about how long you can run on a particular kind of shoe before you have to get another shoe. I mean, I, I learned about stuff that I would never in my life learn about, but I had to because I was going to run a marathon. I didn't want to die. That's the truth. Okay? So... 
And I did, and I finished, and I ran a marathon. So now I got a medal, I ran a marathon, I'm done, I'm not to run a race again, I hope. Um, except for the race set before us. Right? <laughs> it's the only one I'm running. And the prize set before me, I am chasing after something. It's the goal set before me. It's beautiful. Like, here's the deal. Most Christians, I don't think, believe they're running a race. I don't think they, they understand that they're supposed to be getting trained for a marathon. That they're actually, let's take it further, they're actually trained for a war. I mean, I've never met a soldier who's going, man, I just hate boot camp. Like, they, they, they're making us get in shape. They're making us learn how to shoot guns. They're making, like, all this stuff, it's just ridiculous. Who, who wants to do that? Like, you're going to get killed if you don't do it. There's none of them saying that. They're like, we're training, we're getting ready because there's a battle and we may lose our life if we don't train well. And see, here's the deal. Christians would be hungry for training if they were on mission. They would be hungry for his word. They would study it to show themselves approved unto God to be a worker who needs not be ashamed because they're out there doing his work and they're prepared. They know his word. They carry it with them. They're ready at any season to be able to preach it in and out, whatever's necessary. They're ready to open God's word and teach it. In fact, they know it so well, they don't even have to have it in their hands. It's in their heart. Like, you want to know how to get people serious about studying the Bible? Make it so they actually have to. Get them on mission. Call them to make disciples. Get them to teach people God's word, and they will get hungry for it. You know what? Most of you who are paid paid kind of full-time ministers of the gospel, you wouldn't grow up in Jesus had it not been for the fact that you got a position in the church. I know that. Because you were like, I got to give him something, man. I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore, man. I'm a mess. You know, like, you're like, it is word. You're like, gosh, I need this so badly, right? And then the rest of the church is going like, I don't know. I don't really need it that much. It's because they're not feeling the reality of a war. They're not really in the race. They're not understanding that this is to prepare them. All we've been doing is sitting around and talking about it. Well, you know what? If I sat around in school and just talked about stuff forever and never applied it, I'd get so bored of it after a while. I'd be like, what are we doing? What's the point? Is the point that I just know this or is the point that I believe it and live it? So I'd encourage you, like, Mission of Kings will study the Bible, but it's because they have to. They need it. They want to be devoted to God's word. And so they're just like, help me. Like, I love it when we got brand new believers. They're like, I don't even know how to read this. Like, okay, now I want to teach. You know, and you got families going, I don't know how to, I'm supposed to raise up my kids to be little disciple makers. I don't know how to train my kids. Someone teach me. Okay, well, there's a lot in here about that. Let's open it up and teach you. And now let's go live it. And I've been encouraging people more and more to move away from this idea of Bible study to Bible doing. Let's read the Bible and go obey it. Not let's read the Bible and just talk about it. And I guarantee you, if you actually read the Bible and obey it, people will have to get on mission. Because that's the whole point. It's about Jesus and his mission. It will get you there. Um, I, I'll have people every once in a while come to us and go, man, my, my church had tons of Bible studies, you know, if they come from another city. And just wondering, like, where are all the Bible studies here? And I'll say, well, there, there's these missional communities. Yeah, I know, we just want to do a Bible study. And say, well... You get into a mission community and you, go, you guys can study the Bible together while you're on a mission. I don't really want to do that. Uh, and I'll say, well, well, like, help me understand, like, what's the last book you studied? And they'll go, well, you know, I love it if they say James. And you're like, oh, that's so good. I'm so glad you studied James. I live in a town where about 65% of the households are single parents. And we got a lot of orphans and widows here. So clearly you're trained in how to care for orphans and widows. You went through James. You know, and, and I know, and there's a lot of social economic disparity, and the, a lot of times the poor are not take, the rich are not taking care of the poor, and, and so I'm, you're good at that, right? Because you study James. You know, and, and I just go through James. I just walk through all this, like, I'm, well, you must be really wise, because you know that if you lack wisdom, you can ask for God. So, man, we need some wisdom. There's a lot of young people who are really doing foolish things. Would you be willing to just pour wisdom into their life? And they're like, just like, I said I studied James. I don't do James. You know, like, that's really what they mean, right? Because we should expect that if someone studies this, that they're living it. But they're not going to live it if they don't have a community of people going, come on, let's go be obedient. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. Because a disciple is one who's been taught to obey God's word, not just know God's word. See, and you've got to ask, well, how are you going to create an environment where that's going to happen? If all they get is Sunday preaching and Sunday school teaching, but they don't actually have any missional community living, then they'll just be saturated with knowledge up here, but no experiential knowledge of obeying Jesus. 
We want to lead them out. So we study the Bible, but we're not primarily a Bible study in the sense of just sitting around talking about it. We want to go live it. Okay, third, we're not primarily a support group. A missional community that will support one another doesn't exist in perpetual support. So in other words, it's not like a, 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 an AA meeting. Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, Some of you are in those meetings. <laughs> so like, do we want to help someone who might be struggling with alcoholism? Yes. Do we want to help them get free from identifying themselves as an alcoholic? Absolutely. A Christian alcoholic who's getting transformed says, Hi, I'm Jeff. I used to be an alcoholic. Now I'm a child of God being set free. Growing in freedom in all things. Like, so it's not a continual support group that will help people, but we want to build it around our common uh, consistent brokenness. We want to build it around Jesus and his ability to heal and to send us out to be help and support to others who aren't in the group. Okay? Uh, fourth, it's not primarily a social activist group. And this, by the way, is the thing that I was referring to earlier. A lot of people think missional communities are like, they just do projects together. You know, like we, we go and clean up the park and that's our mission. Or, you know, we're helping out with sex trafficking and that's our mission. And by the way, those are both good things to deal with. I'm not saying that at all. But the mission is making disciples who make disciples. And the, the expression of being a disciple is that we're kingdom people. So we do social justice. We do serve. We do bring restoration to things. But that itself isn't the mission. The mission is calling people to love and serve and worship Jesus in all of life so that all of life gets transformed. But the goal is just social activism. And we, I remember we kind of stumbled on this accidentally, kind of discovering we had led our people poorly because we had some mission communities we'd meet with and we'd say, How, how's your mission? And they'd go, oh, it's great. And I'll give you one example. They, one of them said, oh, so well, tell us about it. Well, our mission is the AIDS hospice. Like, oh man, there must be a lot of great opportunities there to serve and love people. Yeah, there are. So tell me about the people. And they were like, what? So like the people, you know, that are in the AIDS house. They said, I know these people are dying. It must be really hard. You must be walking with them through that. And they were blank stares, you know, like, you know, who just, well, tell me their names. Well, I don't know their names. Well, you must be with them, right? No, no, our mission is the AIDS hospice, the house. We, we take care of the grounds and cut, trim the bushes and the rose bushes and paint it and fix things and that's our mission. We're like, no, 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 no. The mission is the people that are dying in the house. The care for the house is the way that you show a picture of the kingdom of God but the kingdom of God breaks in when they, when they love and serve Jesus. When they, they're changed by Jesus. When they know they're gonna get to see Jesus because they love Jesus. And they had made the house the mission. And a lot of people just make a project or an event mission. Um, some people still try to make people a mission, but it's still not really a mission. Like I was in LA talking to a bunch of people who live in Simi Valley, and if you know much about you know, the greater LA region, Simi Valley is not LA. Let's just be clear. Okay? <laughs> it was in the top 10 safest cities in the world. You know, I mean, it's like pretty nice to live there. It's not even a city, but you know, I like it. It's a nice place, and I was ministering to a church called Cornerstone, and we were there, and some guys came up to me and they said, Hey, man, we got this mission. It's awesome. We're reaching out to, like, Skid Row, L.A., you know, people on the street. And I said, really? What are you doing here? Like, I thought, well, maybe they came in from L.A. to, to learn and then go back to L.A. And they said, oh, no, we live here. I said, okay, now I'm confused. Your mission is Skid Row, L.A., homeless people and drug stuff and all that, on, you know, prostitutes, pimps, all that on, and on the street. And I said, yeah. I said, but you live in Simi Valley? And I said, yeah. I said, how is that your mission? I mean, how are you even making disciples of those people? And so we go in once a month and we feed the hungry and just, you know, do street ministry for like a couple hours on Saturday. I said, well, let's be clear. That's not your mission. That's a good work. But your mission are the people that are driving in the car all the way down there and all the way back. Because those are the people you're going to make disciples of. Because you're not going to make disciples of people on the streets until you go down there and live. You can't make disciples of people unless you're with them. And they were like, I mean, it was like I burst their whole bubble. Like, they're like, dang it, there goes that. And I said, don't be discouraged. I, I'm just saying, like, if you feel called to that people group, move. That's what people do when they're on mission. They move. They we move into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did when he was on mission. He moved into the neighborhood. But I said, if that's not who you're called to do, to be, to make disciples of, then just validate the fact that the people you're driving with are the people you're called to make disciples of. And it's great to teach them how to care for the poor and the broken in the city. That's great. Just don't call that your mission because that's not your mission. See, we've used mission very loosely as though it's like, 
Well, just go and do nice good deeds for a couple hours. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't just come to the earth and spend a year here. He spent 33 years in one area his entire life, poured into that area. So it's not just a social activist group. It's also not primarily an affinity group. Okay, and I, I want to unpack this. It may begin as an affinity group um, in a sense that, you know, like you might go, hey, we're, we're going to reach out. To, we had one group who said, we're going to reach out to the artist. And in particular, people who like to write music. And so they identified a bunch of group of people who wanted to write music. And as they trained them how to write music, they said, we're going to get you together once a week. We're going to go through one of the stories from the story of God. So creation, fall, and they went through kind of about 10 key narrative stories from Genesis to Revelation to kind of tell the narrative of the redemptive plan of God. And they, each week they'd do a story and then they'd have people write songs around that story. And then they'd come back and they'd share the songs they wrote and they'd give them critique and help them develop their songwriting skills. And then once a month they, they actually did a, a show, writer's showcase where they, in some kind of club or pub, all the people in their mission community, believers and unbelievers, would share those songs in a public setting. And of course they'd call a lot of the rest of us in the church to come hear them and support them. And we'd tip really, really well at the restaurant or the bar and make sure you buy stuff because you know, if you know anything about music and, and bar, bars or clubs... They only bring musicians in because they want to make money. You know, they generally don't care that much about the art. Some do, but they won't make it if it's only about art. They actually have to have people pay money because that's how business works. And so we go in and bless them and we join them on their mission. And, and people get up and go like, hey, I'm right, I, I wrote this song about Noah. And I, I don't really believe the story ever happened, just so you know. But we're going through it as this group of artists. And here's my reflection on it. you know. And then they do it. Or they go like... You know, I, I, this song is about Jesus and his death on the cross, and I don't believe that, but here's what I think of it. And, and then some would be Christians, and they'd go, here's, here's what this means to me, and they would sing it. And there was that mix. It was really beautiful, because it's like you saw the real honest struggle of what are the thinking of God in this story. And, and they did this, and God, God brought people to faith, and it grew, and there were some great things that happened as a result of it. But as they grew and as they trained people more, some of those people said, you know what? I don't want to just reach this group. God's put people in my life that are older or younger or different in my neighborhood. Could I go and reach them? And then they got sent out of that group to go reach others. And the group that started with affinity grew to diversity. And that's what happens, by the way, in, in disciple making is you might start like, hey, we're trying to reach people that are similar to us. But if you actually reach them, they have people connect them that aren't. And it will grow to diversity. It will look like the kingdom of God. It will look like all tribes and tongues and nations eventually. All ages will be there. So you may start there, but don't stay there because it's probably a sign of immaturity if it always looks like you all the time. Okay. The last one, and this may be the hardest one to get, though you'll see it, I promise you, if you do what we're talking about, um, it's not primarily a weekly meeting. This will be the biggest challenge. We, I think this may be the biggest challenge we face in the church right now. Regardless of whether you buy into this particular thinking of how to be and do church, I, I'm convinced that you will struggle with the idea that people still see church as a meeting. And some people just go like, oh yeah, I love missional community because now it's just a smaller meeting once a week with a group of people who really make it all about me. And I've experienced this, man. It can, it can bleed into a radical consumerism really quick. Because as people are going like, man, the big church didn't think about me very much, but maybe the small church will. And so I'll, now I only have, I have a once a week meeting with a group of people who know me and will just minister to me all the time. And it's so, it's so easy for it to just become a microcosm of the big, bigger problem, which is I go to church so it can minister to me. And for a lot of us, if you talk to most people, they're picking a church that ministers to their needs. But mature Christians should be going, I want to be a part of church so we can minister to others who, who, have, who can't yet minister. So just be aware it'll become like a weekly meeting. I, even my, my missional community, I have to do this almost every other week. They'll say, hey, are we having a missional community next week? And I always go like, wait a minute. Did we, are we shutting the whole thing down? And they were like, ha, ha, ha. And I was like, no. Like, it'd be like me saying, are we going to have Vanderstelts next week? Or are they all going to get killed? I would never say that, you know, like, like, or about my family meeting or meal every night. I wouldn't go like, hey, kids, are we going to have Vanderstelts tonight? Like, Dad, what are you talking about? We're the Vanderstelts. I know, I know. Just wonder if we we're going to eat a meal together. But why don't you just say that? Are we going to eat together tonight? Why doesn't the church go like, so are we going to gather together this week? When? How often are we going to gather this week? 
Instead of saying, are we going to have church? Are we going to have a missional community? Are we going to go to church? No, you're not going to go to church, but, but you might go gather with the church. And some of you are going like, shut up, it's all semantics. It, that's exactly what it is. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I promise you, if people primarily think of church as something they go to or a missional community as an event once a week, they will not live like the people of God on mission all week long. They'll just segment it into a little controllable, neat package that they get to just go like, see, I did that. And Jesus doesn't want that. Jesus wants 24-7. That's what he died to purchase. He wants us for his purposes on the earth. And uh, so you'll have to watch that, just so you know, because I think it's a, it's a potential, maybe it's a more Western problem than it is in some other parts of the world, because in the Western thought especially, we've built a kind of secular, sacred divide, and we've also built a lot of compartmentalism in our lives so that we can kind of protect every aspect of our life um, and I won't get into all the philosophy of why that came there. We, there's a lot in our history that's led us to that conclusion. Pay attention. You're going to be fighting it every week in our culture. Okay? Yes? Yeah. There's a lot of different ways to do this. For us, we just said, um, and we're going to get into this a little bit more, but I'll, I'll tap into it a bit here. We would say, well, how often should a family eat together? So we just use our identity. How often will we eat together? How often will we meet together? What would we do if we were family? And they start going, well, we'd, we'd certainly eat more than once, and we'd probably start to hang out a lot more during the week. And So they start using the family identity, and so then we, we go, well, that is, does, does family always eat together, every single member? No, sometimes I take my wife out for a date. Sometimes I'll eat with my kids that want alone. Maybe sometimes, like right now, I'm traveling, but they're still eating a meal. They're not going like, well, I guess we shouldn't eat together because dad's gone. <laughs> you know, like, like they're, still, they're still getting together. So we, I remember when our mission community had this conversation, they said, well, why, you know, well, let, let's minimally try to have at least three meals together with somebody in the group this week. And so they just started, like, more like life. You know, like, well, we're going to eat. Why not eat with a couple of other people? Or why not eat with some people that don't know Jesus yet? Because that's... We're calling them into the family. And so we just said, well, families eat. Let's eat together. It's not a new activity. That's the beauty of it. It's not taking an, an, an you already do eat, so take something you already do. Now do it together. Um, so it's like that kind of stuff. Or, you know what, do double dates together. Watch each other's kids and someone can go out on a date. So it's, it's actually saying, how would we build a life together? Not how would we just meet together. And then I think it, the imperative will be you'll have to at least meet once a week with everybody, probably. But it doesn't only become that. Does that make sense? Now, some of you are always already going like, this ain't going to work. People won't do it. I know. I know they won't. That's right. And see, here's the problem is we have so catered to the lowest common denominator what we think people will do that we have absolutely no kingdom witness in our culture because we look just like everybody else in every way. I mean, that is just the reality. Like, think about what makes us distinct in this world. Almost nothing other than our message that we proclaim in the meetings we go to. That's about it. And even those aren't that different in some cases. So, and I'm not trying to say like, they'll go like, well, forget it. Everybody who won't do it, just leave. No, you're supposed to disciple them. You know, like, it might be like, I know they're not going to get it right away. So ha have a once a week with them and just start teaching them and say, hey, would you want to come over uh, tonight? We're at, my wife and I want to have some people over for dinner. We thought, well, you guys, would you come on over? And they come on over and go like, this is really cool. I, I'm kind of enjoying this. Yeah, I know it's because we were made for this. And, you know, they just start calling them into the life of the kingdom without making a big to-do list. And that's the problem. It's when you also make it a legalistic, okay, family, we're all going to do this, 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 this. And everybody's got to do it equal measure. You know what? I don't do it with my kids. I don't go like, kids, you're all going to cut the lawn. No, they'll cut their little legs off right now. You know, like, we're not ready for that. So uh, they're getting, I give them a little bit. I'm, I'm leading them, but I know where I'm taking them. I'm trying to help them grow up. So I'm exposing them more and more to the things of what it looks like to be a growing adult when they're young. So same thing. And that's the thing I would just, I want to offer to you. Sometimes we as leaders, we just like, we put the bar up here and expect everybody to jump. And what I would say is have the bar up here for what it means to be a, a fully devoted follower of Jesus and have the entry point as low as you possibly can and then bring them into the life. And it's disciple them up into growth. 
And it's amazing what will happen to people if you just keep calling them to the things that are true of them in Christ. Because the Spirit of God is there agreeing with them, saying, that's right, you are a family. Why wouldn't you love one another? Why wouldn't you be with one another? Like, this is beautiful. It's enjoyable. It's a privilege. Okay? Any other questions like that? Or unlike that, I guess any questions. So. If it has to fit that. <laughs> yeah, Zach. Yeah. 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 So you buy into a new legalism. Everything must be spontaneous and unplanned. Yeah. Yeah. You're gonna have to plan. That's right. Yeah. So, like for my groups, for some of the spontaneity of it is texting each other, Facebooking, praying for each other. Hey. My heater just went out, calling some people. I'm away on trip. Will you help my wife? It's like just being a family together. That's the spontaneous step. But there is the, we are going to meet regularly, and we're going to have meals together, and we're going to plan that out. Just like my family expects me to be home for dinner every night at about 5.30, uh, my, my, my wife and kids. That's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. So you have to do a little bit of both. But what you don't want to do is people go like, check, check, check. Because unfortunately, if they do that, whether you buy, you want to see people live in mission community or not, if they do that with the church, it's just as broken. I mean, if it's like, went to church on Sunday, done. No, we're the people of God. You're not done. It's eternal. You know? And if you don't want that, you should question whether or not you're going to enjoy being in a new earth. Because <laughs> we're going to be together forever. <laughs> Family? <laughs> right? Thankfully, a lot of you will get changed and transformed more in the image of Christ, so it'll be a lot easier for me by then. But <laughs> All right. Um, can you guys keep pressing on? Or I, Break was supposed to be at 345, but that's like another hour, so I'm wondering if we need like a stand break. Should we do that? A little stand break. Okay, you don't get a half hour, though, okay? No sitting on the toilet reading your emails, okay? Like, go to the bathroom, come back, all right? We'll see you in a few minutes. <laughs>